The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. I watched the Republican debate last night. Brought to you by Magic Dental Implants. No, I'm not kidding. Also, the doctor says my ears will stop bleeding within an hour or two. I have one overarching, surprised conclusion. I will never minimize Trump, but he is not so far ahead in the polls just because of his cult, maybe not even mostly because of his cult. He is so far ahead in the polls in large part because Ron DeSantis is a poll string doll. Remember the Simpsons bit where they have the Al Gore doll and they pull the string and it can say only one thing and that one thing is... You are hearing me talk. I will have Europe to p- pull their weight. Uh, right would, now, they're not doing you that. And I think our support should be contingent on them doing it. And I would have support in China uh, to be able to take uh, to be able to take China um, and do what we need to do with China. If you told me Ron DeSantis was not actually on that debate stage in Milwaukee last night, but it was just a hologram of him being beamed in, I would believe you. DeSantis not only repeated all of his one-liners from the campaign, he repeated his one-liner from the first hour of the debate about focusing on the mission in the second hour of the debate. He also had this exchange with one of the moderators, Martha McCallum. She said, quote, that's not the question, Governor. And DeSantis answered, I know. DeSantis also reportedly left the stage by himself without any of the other candidates even saying goodbye to him. I will compliment Fox and McCallum and Brett Baer and the producers and give them credit for something. They did not go all Trump. There were no Trump sound bites. 
There was even an ad in the last commercial break telling Republicans they needed to move on from Trump. The flip side to that, of course, is we had to find out who these people really are and be afraid. Tim Scott gave eight answers in four or more of them. He mentioned that he grew up in a single-family household. In another, Scott said, you can't leave abortion laws to the states. Quote, we can't leave it to Illinois. We can't leave it to Minnesota. We can't leave it to Illinois. Doug Burgum debated even after ripping up his Achilles tendon playing basketball. Did you know he grew up in a town of 300 people? I know because he included that fact in every one of his answers. Mike Pence showed off his extraordinary talent. He is the only politician I have ever seen who can ad lib but make it look like he is reading a teleprompter. Asa Hutchinson mentioned the problem of fentanyl, which I guess is fentanyl mixed with ethanol. Vivek Ramaswamy made the interesting choice to wear eyeliner. He also supplied the helpful information that he is not running to be president of MSNBC. And let me tell you, that job is not all it's cracked up to be. And at one point, Ramaswamy seemed to plagiarize Barack Obama. Finally, in his last answer, he deployed every known English platitude except prepare to meet thy God and employees must wash hands. All of them promised to do exactly whatever it was you wanted them to do about abortions, except Nikki Haley, who noted that no matter what you may want in a national ban, there are not 60 senators to pass it. And the most terrifying thing was that with the exception of Ramaswamy, Every one of them has a 10 times better grasp on reality than does Trump. My friend Howard Feynman, raised in Pittsburgh, had the mot juste on Ramaswamy, and that word was, quote, jagoff, unquote. All of them desperately hate teachers' unions, they told us repeatedly. Asked to raise their hands if they believe there is man-made climate change, not one of them would do so. Asked if they would support Trump as the nominee anyway, they all waited to see what the other ones would do first. And called on it, Christie said he didn't really raise his hand, he was just making a gesture of some kind. And as the former moderator of one of these mega stage party debates, I am chagrined to learn there is yet another network that does not realize that the solution to the candidates refusing to shut the hell up when their time is over is to give them like five seconds grace and then turn the mic off. Overall, I don't know if Trump's absence actually impacts his chances, but I do know that it is never a good idea to unnecessarily give your customer free samples of the eight other leading products so they can figure out in advance which one they will buy if they have to. Don't mistake this as an endorsement of anybody else, but the in-house crowd in the Milwaukee arena did not boo any of them off the stage, not even Pence. And while those two billion brain cells were disappearing from my aging head, Trump and Tucker Carlson were pleasuring themselves on Twitter, fantasizing about, oh, somebody trying to assassinate Trump, and then, woohoo, a civil war. Are you worried that they're going to try and kill you? Why wouldn't they try and kill you, honestly? They're savage animals. They are people that are sick. So do you think it's possible that there's open conflict? I, I can say this. There's a level of passion that I've never seen. There's a level of hatred that I've never seen, and that's probably a bad combination. 
Now back here on Earth One, if Trump is in prison before the 2024 election or maybe even before the 2024 Republican convention, we may have to thank Kenneth Cheesebro, one of the attorneys behind the fake electors scheme. He invoked the provision in Georgia law which affords all defendants a speedy trial. And this is a real thing. And the calculation is... Cheesebro's motion could result in the trial beginning no later than 72 days from now, Friday, November 3rd, 2023. I'm so far out over my skis that when I turn around, I see them way back there at the horizon. But the prospect that the democracy could in part be saved because one of the henchmen of the Eastman Trump plan wanted to get the whole crowd of defendants into court in record time, that is one of the first possibly delightful plot twists in this whole dark stretch of American history, as is the continuing humiliation of Rudy Giuliani. And no, he didn't go bad. He was always an asshole. I'll tell you a story from 1996 at the end of this podcast. But for now, let's just enjoy the idea that he is so strapped for cash that he had to go to a second chance bail bonds in Atlanta yesterday. And he went there because there is no Four Seasons bail bonds. I know. I looked. There is Larry Rusk bail bonds of Jefferson City, Missouri, which claims to serve the Four Seasons area. A little remote for Rudy's purposes. Jeff Clark and Mark Meadows both lost their attempts to stave off their arrests and processing in Atlanta while they try to get their trials moved to federal court. And of course, Trump goes there tonight. And then there are the mugshots. Giuliani clearly took the word mug too seriously. Ray Smith, the Trump attorney in Atlanta, looks like he escaped from somewhere. Jenna Ellis, finally got that high school yearbook photo she's always really wanted. Eastman, Khrushchev on acid. But clearly, what we need here is a GoFundMe to buy the Atlanta jail booking photographer some real lighting equipment. Meanwhile, something happened at that debate, the night before the debate, in fact, that as recently as 15 years ago, would have meant the ends of the careers of every reporter involved, or at least significant punishments and demotions. But the degradation of ethical standards in the D.C. media political industrial complex has been so steady and so stealthy that almost nobody noticed. In fact, I wanted to lead with this today, but I just couldn't talk myself into it. On Tuesday night, three Trump hoodlums led by the disgusting Jason Miller, were, per Politico, whining and dining a dozen top national political reporters at a Milwaukee steakhouse called Rare. The point was to let Trump be there and yet also remain in absentia and to continue taking his shots at Ron DeSantis through his vessels. Jason Miller, Chris LaCivita, and Stephen Chung they handed the reporters packs of pudding snacks, a shot at DeSantis and the eating pudding with his fingers story, and they gave them debate DeSantis bingo cards, mocking DeSantis as desanctimonious and invoking his varying pronunciations of his own name and how many times he says woke and Ron DeSantis can melt in the hot sun for all I care because the issue is not which 
fascist politicians' thugs were doing the insulting and which fascist politician was on the receiving end of the insulting. The point is this. What in the ever-loving Christ were a dozen top American political reporters doing having any kind of meal with any three campaign hacks the night before they covered a debate. These weren't a dozen frauds from Fox News and Newsmax and The Daily Caller. Twelve adults, twelve veteran reporters from CNN and CBS and NBC and ABC and The New York Times and The Washington Post, they thought it was somehow appropriate to share a table with not just political operatives, but political operatives who regularly encourage the public to view news reporters as criminals, as enemies of the people who should be targeted, attacked, assaulted, and killed. Donald Trump, and for that matter, DeSantis as well, believes in censorship and punishment and lawsuits and revenge and violence, both symbolically against freedom of the press and literally against reporters. And as we heard last night, Trump is willing to employ the prospect of civil war as a campaign plank of some sort. And these reporters, not commentators, not TV hosts, reporters, in the field reporters, had no problem sitting down with Trump's employees because, I don't know, I can't even make up whatever implausible rationalizations they employed for not quitting their jobs in horror an hour after the check came and they realized what they had done. I've seen the news media in this country and particularly the political news media firsthand for a quarter of a century and I've seen it start bad and narrow-minded and subservient in 1997 and 1998 and then get worse and worse and more and more amoral approaching the now perfect balance in which access to the people you're covering and TV hits and bylines are a 100 and your journalistic ethics are a zero. And if you're wondering how their bosses reacted to these reporters letting themselves become compromised in this way, and just to make sure it could not possibly be more wrong or more obvious, compromised by Trump people, well, three of them at the dinner were their bosses. At the table, Rick Klein, the political director of ABC News, and Mario Parker, the politics editor of Bloomberg News, and David Shalian, the infamous political director of CNN, the one who defended the Chris Licht Trump live town hall by saying, we obviously can't control what Donald Trump says, that's up to him, and who insisted that Trump's whole, you know, attempted coup thing, quote, does not make our approach any different to him. Three bosses, three guys in charge, so disconnected from the audience they serve, from the nation they supposedly serve. Do you remember that part of it, boys? So not dedicated to anything but themselves that they would break bread with these people. And by the way, it would be just as structurally inappropriate if they'd done this with Biden people. The only difference would have been that the chance of catching some sort of foodborne illness from Jason Miller and Chung and La Civita would have been more than with Biden people. And the presence of the other nine at the table is, in its own way, just as appalling. Dana Bash of CNN was at the table. 
I wish I was surprised by that name. But I was surprised by this name. If you're hoping for improvement when Chuck Todd leaves Meet the Press, forget it. Kristen Welker was at this meal, along with another NBC reporter named Dasha Burns. The chief election correspondent of CBS News, Robert Costa. A CBS politics producer named Finn Gomez. Rachel Scott, senior congressional correspondent of ABC. Shane Goldmacher, national political correspondent, New York Times. Rob Crilly, White House correspondent of the UK's Daily Mail. And if that name sounds familiar from a previous episode... Rob Crilly is the guy who started the whole Biden no comment on Hawaii right wing feeding frenzy because he was the pool reporter who never heard President Biden say that. But he and some other people thought they could read Biden's lips at distance. And so they attributed the quote to him. Rob Crilly is the only one of the 12 at the table here who did not, to my mind, forfeit his journalistic reputation because there wasn't anything to forfeit. If you have been keeping count, and no, I'm not expecting that you have, you would have noticed that's only 11 names because the last of the dozen is, to me, genuinely shocking. Josh Dossey, Political Investigations, Washington Post. He has been part of virtually every major Washington Post Trump story for years. All the document stuff, all the special counsel stuff. Do you know what the Trump people think of him? Do you know what they say about him? Do you know what they say about what they intend to do to the Washington Post? Does he, and he breaks bread with them? He allows himself to be seen with them? And please, don't try to defend this by saying that this is a way to cultivate sources. Because guess what? The Trump guys are also simultaneously cultivating you. And frankly, the last six, seven years of source reporting on Trump shows that the Trump people are better at it than the American political reporters are. But look at all those scoops Woodward and Costa and Haberman and the others got and didn't put in their newspapers, but just sort of held on to, sat on, buried for years, Woodward about covid and the danger it presented to the country in real time sat on them until they could cash that book advance and the politicians all smiled quietly to themselves and said they didn't even notice that we got them to not report something bad about us for like like 28 months jesus are they stupid and please also don't reply or defend this by saying that maybe manipulation of reporters is a serious risk. Okay, but a dinner like that, that can still just safely show professionalism and courtesy on Dossie's part and the part of the other 11. It is quite the opposite. You are not supposed to have personal relationships with key figures in a presidential campaign or an administration. Some contact is going to be inevitable. And no, it doesn't necessarily have to be adversarial, even with the worst of them. But it has to be minimal and only when necessary. And going to dinner with a bunch of them as they roll out their attacks on another candidate, their gimmicks, there's nothing minimal or necessary about that. And then, again, it's who these people are. Those three Trump people include one of the more morally bankrupt members of the Trump administration in Miller, 
and the goonish former fight promoter Chung and La Civita, who rose to prominence as one of the people behind the infamous Swift Boat smear campaign against John Kerry. These are not just sleazebag characters. These are anti-journalists. And even if they really weren't, let me tell you a story from the not-so-distant past. When I finally dived into the deep end of political commentary in August 2006, I got a lot of support from a lot of prominent people in politics, and many formerly in government. And there's nothing like getting a phone call and the guy on the other end says, Keith, hi, this is George McGovern. I'm a fan. And there wasn't a damn thing wrong with their phone calls or their notes of support. But far and away, the most support and the most valuable support came from former President Bill Clinton. Within three weeks of my first special comment, I got an invitation and they said it was at President Clinton's personal direction to attend the Clinton Global Initiative here in New York and then to join a private meetup with him. He wanted to say hello. I went to my bosses at NBC News to ask about the ethics. They were good with it, provided that if anything I heard or did was impacted by going, that I make some sort of disclaimer on the air that I had been there and it had been gratis when the price usually was like 15 grand to get in. President Clinton came down a set of steps and came over to me and stared at my face and said, oh, you look pretty good. I don't see any scars. His support meant the world to me. I shouldn't have accepted it. President Clinton continued to invite me to events throughout 2006. I went to his 60th birthday party. Me and, you know, 8,000 others, including the Rolling Stones concert at the Beacon Theater. Katie Turr and I went as a couple to the Clinton holiday cocktail party at the Russian Tea Room. Each time... Before I did anything like this, I went to management so they knew. And later, I realized that each time I did that, part of me was hoping that management would say, no, no, that's enough. Because I was absolutely certain that it did not impact what I put on the air and that not once did anybody at any of these events give me any stories on the record or off or try to influence what I was saying about them. Nothing happened that I even thought of reporting. And then it happened. Late in 2007 or early in 2008, as Barack Obama began to challenge Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination, her advertising took a dramatic turn to the right. As the primaries approached, and so did Obama, suddenly there was this commercial. It's 3 a.m. and your children are safe and asleep, but there's a phone in the White House and it's ringing. Something's happening in the world. Your vote will decide who answers that call, whether it's someone who already knows the world's leaders, knows the military, someone tested and ready to lead in a dangerous world. It's 3 a.m. and your children are safe and asleep. Who do you want answering the phone? I'm Hillary Clinton and I approve this message. First time I saw that ad, I was stunned. I thought until the last line it was a John McCain ad or maybe a Giuliani. It sure as hell wasn't a Democratic ad. And as I contemplated, as a commentator again, not as a reporter, what to say about that ad and the implications of it, I hesitated. I knew Hillary Clinton. I knew Bill Clinton. 
I was now imagining mitigating factors in this. They couldn't know about it, or they didn't see the final version, or they did it reluctantly, or they wouldn't do it again, certainly, after the blowback. All my instincts said, nah, she, she, she's decided she needs a Republican ad to attack Obama's supposed inexperience. She's willing to put that out. And in the event Obama wins the nomination, she's willing to leave that weapon on the field for the Republican to use against Obama, too. And still I hesitated. I stalled. Days passed, maybe a week, and then it hit me. I was pulling my punches because the Clintons had slowly transformed from people I covered and analyzed and commented on and maybe had met and respected or didn't respect. They went from that to being people I knew and liked. And the access to them was something I valued. And that's after two parties and a concert. I was already compromised. And these idiots in Milwaukee Tuesday spent hours with the dregs of human civilization as they played Trump's destructive, soul-sucking, manipulative game of insult and attack. And I bet not one of them, not the three political directors, not the future host of Meet the Press, not the CBS News chief political reporter, not the guy from The Times and not the guy from The Post, not one of them thought that someday, maybe someday real soon, it could be those three guys again sitting around with a dozen different reporters only the equivalent of the DeSantis pudding packets and the DeSantis debate bingo cards, whatever that was, it would be about them. Let's sit around and have a nice meal while Jason Miller tries out his attack lines against Kristen Welker. As we all try to get Kristen Welker fired because she dared to criticize Trump or Costa or Dossie when the crowd is 12 yahoos from Breitbart and The Daily Caller and Newsmax. What are you going to do about that then, Josh? We are where we are in this country because since at least 2015, our political reporters could not and would not process the reality that democracy itself is at mortal risk because of people like Jason Miller, Stephen Chung, and Chris Lasavita, and even if they really somehow are just good guys doing a tough job. The guy they work for is the greatest villain in this nation's history and an active mortal danger to every one of them and every one of us. Eight years into this, and there is still no fundamental appreciation in the media that these are not just guys who are more right-wing than the other right-wingers. They're not just some political ops guys. I've been covering this type my whole life. They are people who will put and have put Americans in danger in America. These are creatures who have peddled hatred and racism and homophobia and xenophobia and have manipulated the American media to help them do it. Another Trump presidency could easily see prosecutions of journalists and roundups and imprisonments. And these reporters' willingness to ignore that chance, whether it's 50% or 0.00005%, and to sit there laughing with people who are metaphorically willing to kill them 
and maybe you can forget the word metaphorically, that's nearly as dangerous to our society right now as being one of the people willing to do the prosecuting of journalists. You can see them all in the line, can't you? In some funhouse mirror twisted version of what just unfolded with the bookings and mugshots in Atlanta these last few days, climaxing tonight with Trump turning himself in, Dana Bash and Kristen Welker and Costa and Rachel Scott and Goldmacher and Dossie and even that slug Crilly because the Trump-friendly journalists will wind up in the same pit as the rest of them. All of them standing around in this line with the guards on either side, still convincing themselves that they're not really going to prison prison. They're just going in for a few hours and they're pals. Jason Miller and Chris LaCivita and Stephen Chung, they'll be coming down to get them out any moment now because we don't jail journalists in this country. And, you know, uh, even if we do, remember that great steak dinner we had the day before the Milwaukee debate in 23? It's personal relationships that count in this game. Jason and Chris and Big Steve and pudding packets. They'll be right over to get us out of here. Won't they? Also of interest here, back to Rudy. And I knew Rudy was a crazy sleazebag when knowing Rudy was a crazy sleazebag wasn't cool. Also, the death of the leader of the Russian Wagner group, Evgeny Prigozhin, two months to the day after his almost coup. Plane accident. True? First time I ever heard of a plane falling out of a window. That's next. This is Countdown. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come, find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions, Dateline Secret Service Headquarters. Any other day of the goddamn month, and this is your lead story right here, there are Secret Service internal emails, and they show that special agents were in close contact with Stuart Rhodes of the Oath Keepers in 2020 and treated him like some sort of helpful amateur colleague rather than the dangerous white supremacist anti-democracy convict-in-waiting that he is. Crew, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, got those emails, just a few, but enough to confirm that when a former Oath Keeper testified, he heard Rhodes boasting that he had a contact inside the Secret Service and that he thought he heard Rhodes talking on the phone with a member of the Secret Service. He wasn't wrong. The emails are from September 2020, and they pertain to a Trump visit to Fayetteville, North Carolina. The Secret Service agent is telling others in the Secret Service that he is, quote, the unofficial liaison to the Oath Keepers, inching towards official. He reassures them that they are, quote, primarily retired law enforcement, former military members who are very pro-law enforcement officer and pro-Trump. Their stated purpose is to provide protection and medical attention to Trump supporters if they come under attack by leftist groups. The Secret Service agent included a cell phone number for everybody else in the group. Stuart Rhodes's cell phone number. The unnamed Secret Service agent was either amazingly naive or he thought his colleagues were, and he could sell them on the Oath Keepers as some kind of older Boy Scout troop. He never once mentioned the other stuff the stuff that got Rhodes and other members of the group convicted of seditious conspiracy and Rhodes sentenced to 18 years in prison. Months ago, I suggested to President Biden that perhaps, perhaps the Secret Service was not, you know, entirely loyal and maybe he should, you know, replace them, all of them, immediately. Dateline 100 miles north of Moscow. Hell, nobody saw this coming. Guy starts to lead his vast mercenary army towards the Kremlin to straighten out that Vladimir Putin guy. Instead, he stops, cuts a deal. Putin welcomes him back with open arms in Moscow. Everything's great. And then he's in his private jet. And two months later to the day, the plane falls out of the sky. And this Evgeny Prigozhin is meat. All aboard dead. And there's video. Lots of different videos. And the plane, you know, didn't descend or anything like in a crash or a depressurization. It just dropped out of the sky like they do in bad cartoons. In the immortal words of Boris Badenov from Rocky and Bullwinkle, I sent Lady Spy with bomb into room where are moose and squirrel. Who gets blown up? Me. As Dante Atkins writes on Twitter, the real shock in the Prigozhin crash is that Russian air defense hit a target.
on this all-new edition of Countdown, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. From A, America's Mayor to A, Second Chance Bail Bonds, Atlanta. Yeah, there's something wrong with that narrative. You know what it is? He was never America's mayor. He had two good weeks, maybe, in 2001. He was a psycho in the 90s, and have I got a story for you about how I found that out, personally, coming up. First time for the Daily Roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, the Biden campaign. I don't mind trolling the Republicans with billboards in Milwaukee before their first debate. I mean, they really do serve to get the political media attention. And as we've discussed previously, that's quite a feat. But to roll out your first national TV ad on Fox News before the Republican debate, an ad which will now convert like eight or nine voters, if you're lucky, and give the salesman at Fox the chance to go to other advertisers and say, see, we are a legit place to spend your dollars. Joe Biden buys airtime from us. Please, kids, ask one of us old timers before you try too much snark like this. Runners up CNN and Warner Bros. Discovery Chairman David Zaslav back in the saddle after taking the summer off after the self-destruction of his boy Chris Licht and the entire entertainment industry. Semaphore News reporting that the leading candidate he has to succeed Licht to run CNN is former BBC chief Sir Mark Thompson. Because clearly, what American TV news needs right now is a 66-year-old Brit especially one who, when he got involved in BBC News, agreed it was a good idea to put the leader of the avowedly fascist British National Party on one of the network's regular news programs like he was just another politician. Hey, you know, look, if you're looking for somebody to both sides CNN to death, you know who I understand is available? This guy Chris Licht. But our winner is the Washington Post. Once again, we are all going to die because Josh Dawsey sat there grinning at Jason Miller at a Milwaukee steakhouse, and because the Post will keep running headlines like this one until the very moment the temperature in D.C. hits 144 degrees Fahrenheit and the city spontaneously combusts. Quote, Democrats and Republicans divided on causes of extreme weather, post-UMD poll finds... Look, if your poll told us something unexpected, like Republicans suddenly realize planet is on fire, maybe you could use the dainty language then. Otherwise, just just once, just once, somebody, somebody take a stand for truth. Not, not milk toast truth, just real truth. Say it. Democrats understand it's climate change and Republicans are morons who are in denial because they make money off being in denial. Just say it once. The Washington pro-democracy and pro-authoritarian forces divided on appropriateness of new American civil war post today's worst persons in the world. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. 
You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead on Countdown, the only person who may end up in legal trouble after two and a half years of the Hunter Biden laptop could very well be Rudy Giuliani. It continues his epic descent, which began not in 2016, not in 2007, not even after 9-11. I first met the real clueless, useless Rudy nearly 30 years ago. Coming up next. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need. You can help. Every dog has its day to Miami and Snaggle. He is 15 pounds. He's a handsome Shih Tzu mix, gray and white and black and curly. And he lived in the woods by himself for four of his five years. 
They found him in December. He had to be at the vet for weeks before he was healthy enough to go to a foster home. Teeth pulled, infections cured. He's now fine. Paw Patrol, Animal Rescue, and Sanctuary could use some help with his bills, but right now their focus is finding him a home. Because he lived as a feral dog, there are all kinds of restrictions on fences and other dogs, but if you're near Miami, you might be right for him. You can find Snaggle on the Cuddly website or on my Twitter feed. Donate, retweet, or apply to adopt. I thank you, and Snaggles thank you. To the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. I hear this question about Rudy Giuliani a lot. When did his life go so horribly, horribly wrong? Here was America's mayor, the rock, in the hours of crisis after 9-11. What is he now? After literally years of trying to sell the Hunter Biden laptop story, who does the Hunter Biden laptop story bite? him four seasons gardening the mascara running down his face gaseous emissions at phony election hearings the sasha baron cohen film i mean even back then i thought it was nuts that people actually thought rudy giuliani was the front runner for the 2008 republican presidential nomination while he was widely held to be just that in 2006 and 2007 and by the time it happened, he was already on his way to spending millions of dollars to finish last. But it was the final nail in the coffin in which he still lives. At a Democratic debate in 2007, October 30th, before the field shook out everybody but Obama and Hillary, one of the other candidates was excoriating the Republicans and their exploitation of terrorism and the Al-Qaeda attacks. And that other candidate said of Giuliani, quote, there's only three things he mentions in a sentence, a noun, a verb, and 9-11. The candidate was Joe Biden. The phrase, a noun, a verb, and 9-11 ended Rudy Giuliani's career, and Giuliani's dislike of Joe Biden, many decades old, turned to hatred at that exact moment, which is why we got to where we got to in 2020. That was also the exact moment at which any hopes Julie Hattie had of being elected anything anywhere ever again vanished. But it was clear to me as far back as September 2001 that sadly what we saw at that time was a bad man having a few good days. Before that month was out, Giuliani's response to the attack on democracy was to himself attack democracy, to propose that the November election to choose his successor to be mayor of New York should be postponed, or that at least he should stay on for a few months as co-mayor, because he was irreplaceable. There had always been more subtle hints that Giuliani was never a good man, just a slightly smarter one, a more devious one. The venomous Rudy, the scheming Rudy, the amoral Rudy, the Rudy with a bad song in his heart, leaked out from time to time and often inside the world of sports, which is where I met him. You will remember, Rudy Giuliani was a professional New York Yankees fan. He always went to the games for free, mind you, dugout seats for himself, his wife, his other wife, his next wife, the kids, the friends. 
When I still had friends in Yankee Stadium, they estimated Rudy used to cost them thousands of dollars every time he showed up. He always left via the clubhouse. He always wore a Yankees cap. He billed himself as, quote, the number one Yankee fan. And then when the Boston Red Sox were playing in the 2007 World Series, when he was campaigning for president in New Hampshire, Rudy Giuliani suddenly announced he was rooting for the Red Sox. This is like being a Trump fan and announcing you are rooting for democracy. But I went back with Rudy Giuliani even longer than that. In 1995 or 1996, I was asked by the deputy mayor of New York City, Fran Reiter, and the staff of the Baseball Hall of Fame to travel from ESPN in Connecticut, literally to the steps of New York City Hall, to emcee an event for what must have been 35 members of the Baseball Hall of Fame, maybe the largest group of them ever assembled in one place in one moment in time. The deputy mayor approached me and the mayor a few steps behind her on that gorgeous spring day. As she began to introduce us, she realized he had begun to wander off. Rudy? Rudy! She bellowed. He wandered back. Rudy, this is Keith Olbermann from ESPN. He's going to be the MC. You will have to introduce him after you speak. The mayor seemed to be having trouble focusing on me or anything else. I thought of the old joke, just, just keep your eyes on the Olbermann in the middle. He extended a hand, missed mine, then recalibrated. As we shook hands, he grunted. The deputy mayor now roared at him. Brody, you have to introduce him. His name is Keith Olbermann from ESPN. He's the MC. Giuliani turned and looked at her like he'd never seen her before. He grunted again. Deputy Mayor Reiter now screamed at Rudy Giuliani. Repeat it to me! He looked at me, then he looked back at her, and he said, His name is Keith Alderman from ESPN. He's the MC." With annoyance, Reiter said, Thank you! And Giuliani smiled and wandered off again. And I half-seriously thought, Did I just meet a body double? Is he a replicant? Is he a well-built robot? This can't be the actual mayor. Well, it was. I took my seat in the front row of the stage that had been built atop the city hall steps as the crowd gathered, and it was a good one, maybe three or four hundred people. The president of the Hall of Fame spoke first. The mayor sat next to me. Giuliani leaned in at one point and whispered to me, Your name is Keith Olbermann from ESPN. You're the MC. I talk. I introduce you. I said something encouraging, and he smiled broadly like a child who was about to get some candy. The president of the Baseball Hall of Fame wrapped up, introduced Giuliani, who bounced up to the stage and thanked him and got his name wrong. He then launched into a speech taking credit for the great weather and the terrific early season performance of the New York Yankees and the New York Mets and the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants who had moved out of New York in 1957. But if he had been mayor, then they wouldn't have moved out and New York would have the four teams it deserves. And look at all these great players. Let me now turn it over to a good friend of mine and a great baseball man. And he looked at me and he forgot everything. Silence titters of laughter from the crowd. And finally, he looked the other way behind him, where the deputy mayor had her head in her hands. Rudy Giuliani, into a microphone that picked up everything he said, said loudly, 
What's his name? Who is he? And now the titters of laughter in the crowd turned to a little bit louder laughter, and some of the Hall of Fame players seated behind me gave me pats of consolation on my shoulder. Fran Ryder screamed, Keith Olbermann from ESPN, the MC, you repeated it to me. Giuliani turned back to the crowd as if there had been no way they could have heard or seen any of this, and he said, so let me turn it over to a good friend of mine and a great baseball man, Keith Obelman, our NC from ESPM. I just sat there. More laughs, more consolations from the players behind me. I can still hear the laugh of the late Detroit Tigers great Al Kaline rising above the others. Al later came over to commiserate. As I thought, should I get there and say, thank you, Mayor Dinkins? Or better yet, thank you, Mayor LaGuardia. I then concluded, no, I can't do that. I'm representing ESPN. I'm representing the Baseball Hall of Fame. As I thought that, he said it again. So now I got up and I told the crowd, sorry, I wasn't sure he meant me. So if you are saying to yourself, what on earth happened to Rudy Giuliani with that brown schwitz pouring down his face? I am saying to you, he has been this crazy for at least 30 years. You were just lucky enough to have not previously noticed. It is all true, or my name ain't Keith Obelman, our NC from ESPM. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Countdown has come to you from our studios high atop the sports capsule building here in New York. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. Sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Stevie Van Zant. Everything else is pretty much my fault. That's countdown for this, the 960th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.